Hello, everyone. My name is Glenn Deason, and with me is the always excellent uh, Alexander Mercurius. And the guest today is uh, Peter Schiff, who is the CEO uh, of Euro-Pacific Capital. And also, if I'm not mistaken, you're the economic advisor to Ron Paul's presidential campaign, among other things. So, uh, yeah, well, welcome. It's a yeah, great uh, privilege to have you on. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, yeah, when the global financial crisis uh, was unfolding around 2008, I think every expert on TV was arguing that the real estate uh, market was strong and the US economy was strong. And I even remember many arguing that the high debt was an indication of you know the world's trust in the, the economy and the US dollar. However, again, we had one economist who stood out uh, arguing that we were about to enter a, a collapse in the housing market. And again, this was uh, Peter Schiff. And um, also, if I'm not mistaken, you were warning about this since 2005. And of course, you wrote a book about it ahead of it, uh, about how it will happen on the fold uh, before this financial crisis as well. So uh, anyways, Peter, as a result of your spot-on predictions, I read your books and follow your appearances and your popular podcasts. Mm -hmm. So also making me much more interested in the Austrian School of Economics and much more critical of Keynesianism. So speaking as a fan, it's uh, great to have you on. Uh, thank you. Sure. Uh, and actually, you know, my warnings of the bubble that the Fed was inflating in the housing market really started in about 2002, 2003 timeframe. So by 2005, the bubble was really at its peak. But I was uh, sounding the alarm years before then. I could see the monetary policy mistakes that the Fed was making and the impact those mistakes were having on the housing market, on the mortgage market. And I knew that it was just a matter of time before the whole thing blew up. And of course, I knew the longer it would take to blow up, to blow up, the bigger uh, the crash would be. Uh, yeah, I remember at the time, because uh, around 2006, my government sold off all the gold of our country. So I thought <laughs> they should have been uh, listening and reading your books. Uh, anyways, my, my, my first question is uh, yeah, about the state of the U.S. economy at the moment. Uh, again, this uh, problem with uh, trade deficits, uh, debt, uh, inflation, which is increasing. Uh, do you think the Federal Reserve can get this under control or is it beyond, uh, you know, does it have any instruments left or uh, where do you see us heading from here on? Well, the, the, the problems that were concerning me back in 2002 through the 08 financial crisis those problems are much worse now. Yes, we don't have the specific subprime mortgage issue, but the subprime market was really just kind of the tip of the credit bubble. There was a lot going on, you know, besides subprime that was problematic. That was just the most obvious, and it was the first link in the chain to crack. But uh, if it wasn't, you know, subprime, it would have been something else. But the, the, the problem is the debt in the economy, which is much greater now than it was then, and the underlying structure of the U.S. economy, which is even more screwed up now than it was then. The, the trade deficits are larger today than they were during that time frame, which means we have an even more dysfunctional economy because we, ha we rely on imports. We, we can't produce the things that we consume, the economy is incapable of doing that. And, and so we rely on the rest of the world to supply us with the goods that we can't produce, but we have no way of paying for those goods. So the, the external liabilities continue to grow. The debt that America owes the world continues to grow. And at some point, the lenders are not going to want to continue because they are going to realize that they're not going to get paid, you know, not in, in real money. And finally, inflation has reared its head in a very visible way in the last couple of years. And, and this is evidence that it's about to fall apart because inflation is really what breaks this whole deal. Because once the dollar starts losing value, then people want to get rid of their dollars. And we need people to hold their dollars if we want to keep importing. But if we can't import you know, a whole economy that's based on borrowing money to buy imports is going to collapse. Is there a possibility of going into hyperinflation or is this uh, 
uh, or do you think this can be managed at a more you know moderate level? Well, it, it can't be managed at a moderate level. To avoid hyperinflation, a lot of bad stuff's going to have to happen. At least it's going to feel bad. From a macroeconomic perspective, it's going to be good stuff. It's going to be solutions to serious uh, underlying economic problems. But, you know, the politicians and the central bankers really have no stomach for those type of free market solutions that will actually work. Because before you get the gain, you get the pain. And none of the politicians want pain because they're afraid that they won't get reelected. And so they'd rather kick the can down the road so that the pain happens after some future election when somebody else is in office. So that's what's happening. But what you're seeing right now is the Fed having reacted to inflation that it claimed didn't exist or was transitory. And it's now raised rates up to, you know, four and a half, four and three quarters. And it's projecting the rates to get just above 5% over the next few months. A lot of people think that that's it, that that's enough, that the inflation genie is now back in the bottle. We just have to wait a few more months. It's going to go back down to 2%. And then the Fed can start easing up again and lowering rates and everything is going to be great. But that's not what's going to happen. I think the improvement we've seen in the inflation numbers, that's what's transitory. I think by the end of this year, the inflation numbers are going to moving are going to be moving decisively higher again. And it's going to be obvious that the Fed is nowhere near its goal of 2% inflation. It's going to need much more substantial hikes than what has happened so far. But I think by then you're going to see some kind of rollover in the labor market, you know, notwithstanding the big job numbers we just saw. And, you know, I, I, I've been looking at the nature of these jobs that we've created. And over the last 10 months, we've actually destroyed full-time jobs. You have fewer people who have full-time jobs today than we had 10 months ago, despite all these jobs, including the 500,000 that were just created in, in, in January. On, on balance, these are part-time jobs, and they're going to people who already have jobs. So why are so many people moonlighting? It's because inflation is so bad that it's destroying the value of their paychecks. So they need another one. Mm -hmm. and, and so you have record numbers of people working two or three jobs. You have people who are retired. They're being forced back into the workforce. So I think that by the end of the year, though, we're going to have to start to see a pronounced weakness, weakening in the, the labor market. The, the economic data is already weak. I think it's going to get weaker. And then the Fed is going to be in a real bind because it's going to be facing higher inflation and a weakening economy and a weakening labor market. But rates are already going to be above 5%, which ha and they would have been had no effect. And, and so they're going to think, well, what are you going to do, 7%, 8%? But this economy was not even built for 5%. The phony economy that the Fed built needs 0%. That's basically the highest we can afford. We have a $31.5 trillion national debt, and you know they're raising the debt ceiling, and it's going to go a lot higher. But if rates stay at 5% for a few years, it's going to cost more than a trillion dollars just to pay the interest on that national debt, which there's, there's no way the government's going to get that money. It's going to have to borrow that, which means the budget deficits could go to $3 trillion a year. Well, how are they going to fund those? You know, the Fed's going to have to go back to quantitative easing. And that's the risk of hyperinflation because the Fed really can't fight this inflation with an interest rate that is high enough to do the trick, but that we can actually afford. And more importantly, there's no way to really fight inflation without cooperation from the government. The government needs to cut spending, mm. but they're not doing that. They're increasing mm. spending. Mm. In fact, as the economy weakens, they're going to increase spending even more. In fact, what their um, you know, motivation is when consumers are struggling with high prices, they want to spend more money. They want to give people stimulus checks so they can afford to pay the higher prices, which is just more inflation. So, you know, inflation is a huge problem. And, you know, the, 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 the hidden truth is that inflation has been the Federal Reserve's, you know, ace in the hole. I mean, that's 
That's how they've gotten us out of every problem, inflation. Quantitative easing is a euphemism for inflation. That's all it is. So the way the Federal Reserve got us out of the financial crisis, the way the Federal Reserve got us out of the COVID crisis was by creating inflation. The Fed's solution to every problem is inflation. Well, now the problem is inflation. So that's the box, because how do you solve the problem of inflation if inflation is your only solution to every problem? Can I just ask, do you think that the headline inflation rate that we're getting is, in fact, anywhere close to the reality of it? I, I asked this question <laughs> because I, I saw a, I saw an article, actually, of yours, actually, recently, in which you were saying that, you know, they're, they're getting the deflator wrong, that, in fact, yes. some of the growth that we've been allegedly seeing isn't really growth at all because the inflation is being set is being, you know, the public published figure for inflation is being set too low. I mean, is is that, could you perhaps enlarge on that? Because I think that's an important yeah. point, which people don't understand, actually. Yeah, well, I mean, the government gives us these inflation numbers. And the inflation numbers basically are a report card on the economy. The same thing with the GDP numbers. Well, if we allowed our children to grade their own report cards. Would we be surprised if they came home with straight A's? No, I mean, obviously the government has a vested interest in telling the public that the economy is better than it really is. So it wants to tell the public that there's less inflation than there is, that there's more economic growth than there is. And so they create these numbers to you know, come out with being better than reality. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's a conspiracy. You know, are they fudging the numbers? They're not fudging the numbers. The way they measure the numbers, that's been designed to fudge them automatically. So nobody has to do anything. All you have to do is use the government formula and you're gonna get these rigged numbers. And you know, one way I, I even show this, back in 2013, right? So this is a while ago. I just did a little experiment. I mean, I could do the same experiment again. I, you know, maybe I should. It was, a, it was a very good one. But what I did is I looked at the prices that the government claimed, the increases, and then I looked at actual increases. And so one of the things I looked at was newspapers and magazines, because that was real easy. So according to the government, from 2003 to 2013, Newspaper and magazine prices were up a total of 30% over those 10 years. So that'd be about 3% a year, right? So I went back and looked at, on the internet, at 2003 images of the most popular newspapers and magazines in the country. Right? U.S. News and World Report, Time, uh, Newsweek, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, all these newspapers and magazines. And I just looked at the prices. And then I looked at the prices that are printed on the covers then in 2013. So I could compare exactly what they were. So I added everything up you know, and, and figured out the increase. And the actual rate of increase in newspaper and magazine prices was 130%. So the government said prices were up 30%, but the prices themselves were up 130%. So what happened to that 100? How did 130% rise become a 30% rise. I have no idea. That's the magic of the CPI. It makes inflation disappear. And it makes growth look higher than it actually is if you if you do this kind of thing, because of course you're not, you're counting in effect, what is in effect inflation as growth, right. if that's my understanding of this. That's, that's one of the reasons that governments like mm. inflation. I mean, it's their silent yeah. partner. It's the way they tax the public mm. without actually having to raise their taxes in a way that the public knows they're being taxed, but it also makes the numbers look better. The government can create phony economic growth and then take credit for it by creating inflation. So in effect, we have had inflationary policies, deliberately inflationary policies for yes. a long time. Why, why, are we, why have we been doing this? I mean, presumably people understand in government in well, the federal in the banks that you know the central banks that this isn't that this is what they're doing i mean is it because they don't want to have uh, recessions is it because yeah they don't well, want to you know. i mean why does it why does a heroin addict take heroin 
Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's part of it. But also, if you understand one of the dynamics of inflation also is that it transfers wealth from creditors to debtors, right? People that are in debt benefit from inflation because the value of their debts are diminished. And the, the, the lenders suffer because when they get paid back the money they loaned, they're getting paid back in money that has less value. So who is the biggest debtor in the world? The U.S. government. So who stands the most to gain from inflation? The U.S. government. So it stands to reason that if the U.S. government has more to gain from inflation than anybody else in the world, it is going to pursue an inflationary policy. And that is exactly what's happening through the Federal Reserve, right? Because they need the cooperation of the Fed and they've got it. Do you think that things have got even worse over the last few years? I mean, I, I'm going to say something. I, I actually, this is something I actually said publicly. And, you know, I'm not an economist. I'm not somebody who's particularly into economics. But I said when Biden came, became president, announced his various programs, I said this is, this is in 2021, early 2021. I said this is going to feed inflation. This is going to, this, this, the, the, the spending that he's pro projecting is so huge, it is bound to feed inflation. And yet this didn't seem to concern people. And in fact, we got the inflation and you say that it's now, you know, more policy towards more inflation. Do you sense that some kind of boundaries being crossed that up to fairly recently people were holding back a little, but now they're going further out, they're going even more to extreme levels with this than they had previously? Well, I just think that the inflation is now so high and so obvious that they can't pretend it doesn't exist, mm -hmm. which is what they were doing for many years when the central banks were saying, oh, it's not high enough. It's not quite 2%. It's only 1% or 1.5%. This is terrible. We need more inflation. We need to hit our 2% target. Of course, the whole time it was well above 2%. They were just pretending it was 2% below so that they could have some type of justification for the policies that they wanted to Pursue, but now that we're so far above two percent that you know, you know the cat's out of the bag. I mean, there's there's no way that they can fool the public anymore, or even investors, that there's no more inflation. Now, I think there are investors now that are hopeful that inflation is going to come back down. And that's because they don't understand inflation. They never did. They think inflation is rising prices, which it's not. Inflation is the expansion of the money supply and. Uh, the result of that is that prices go up, but not always. I mean, sometimes uh, you can expand the money supply and instead of prices going down, uh, they, they remain the same. Or instead of going down by 10%, they go down by 2%. That, that, that difference is still inflation. It's a you know, robbing of purchasing power because government spending has to be paid for. Nobody gets government for nothing. So if the U.S. government is going to run these big deficits, how, how do we cover the cost? We're, we're not getting it for free. And so either we're going to pay for it directly with taxes or we're going to pay for it indirectly through higher prices. Because the government can either take our money and then give that to somebody else to spend, in which case I've got less money so I can buy less stuff. Or the government just prints money and gives it to somebody else to buy stuff that bids up prices. And now because prices are higher, I can't buy as much stuff. And so either way, I have to consume less because somebody who got money from the government is consuming more. That, that, that's the bottom line. And so as long as the government is, is spending money like this, there's going to be inflation. You know? uh, and, but the, what the government does is they try to blame the inflation on, on, on other factors, on greedy businessmen gouging their customers, on Putin, right? the Putin price hikes. But they don't say, hey, the reason we have inflation is because we're spending all this money on programs that we didn't raise your taxes. So this is how you're paying for it. I wanted to ask about the possibility of alternatives, though, because the, it's often been argued that, yes, the U.S. dollar has its problems. But uh, again, the key argument has been that it's the cleanest shirt in the dirty hamper. 
So, you know, we don't have these other alternatives. But as Alexander was pointing out in the past few years, I mean, after global financial crisis, not only was there an economic war with China, which unraveled supply chains and made them a bit more apprehensive, but then, of course, you had COVID with production collapsing with the lockdowns. Meanwhile, the supply of money escalated dramatically. You know, if you have lower production, higher supply of money, usually this is a recipe for high inflation as well. And also now we're at war. And, you know, at least here in Europe, this seems to be accelerating the industrial decline and rise in debt. So I'm just wondering, well, it, it doesn't seem like this can go on forever, but is, is it still the, is this still an absence of alternative or what, 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 why, why aren't people fleeing the dollar? Well, certainly to a degree, there's uh, truth to what you're saying in that all the shirts are in the hamper, right? There's no clean shirts out there when it comes to a fiat currency. They're all dirty. Now, I don't think the dollar is the least dirty or the cleanest of the dirty shirts. I actually think it's the dirtiest. It's just that most people haven't gotten a whiff of it yet. They, they don't realize that the dollar is dirtier. And because of this misperception that we're the cleanest shirt in the hamper, people are willing to buy dollars. They're willing to invest those dollars in U.S. treasuries or other dollar-denominated debt instruments. They're really to recycle their trade surpluses into our financial assets. And that kind of has enabled us to continue to you know, take on more debt and, and, and you know, build this phony bubble economy bigger and bigger because we've been able to get away with it because the world is basically giving us the rope to hang ourselves with, and that's what we're doing. But at some point, the world is going to get a whiff of the U.S. shirt and realize just how dirty it is, and they're not going to want the dollar anymore. Now, does that mean they're going to want the euro because it's not as dirty or the yen? No. See, what I think is going to happen is when people realize that all the shirts are dirty, and it doesn't even matter which one is the least dirty, if you want something that's clean, you got to get out of that hamper. And the only thing that's not in the hamper is real money, which is gold. And, and so ultimately, every central bank that is looking for a safe uh, reserve asset to back up their currency is going to return to gold. You know, and, and, and people, too, private parties that are looking for a safe monetary instrument, liquidity, that they can store their purchasing power, they're going to look to gold. They're not going to be they're not going to be in dollars or euros or yen. They're going to look at gold. Gold as an alternative, not to stocks or bonds or real estate. Gold as an alternative to dollars or euros. That's what it is, right? Because if you want to make an investment, you don't buy gold. Gold's not an investment. You know, you buy real estate or you buy stocks. But what if you don't want to buy real estate and stocks because you think they're too expensive? You want to wait for those prices to come down. Where do you keep your dry powder? Well, now you need a monetary instrument. But if your monetary instruments are losing value rapidly because of inflation, well, then what do you do? You go to gold uh, because gold is going to be able to be a store of value, whereas the dollar uh, can't be. And, and ultimately, neither can the euro or the yen or any of these currencies. Can I ask, I mean, what do you make of this argument, you know, Zoltan Poshta, I probably get his name wrong, has been making that, you know, it's going to be all about commodities, that it's going to be um, uh, currencies that are linked to commodities in some ways that are going to be replacing the fiat system. I mean, is this is this a practical option? I mean, what argues against it? Well, I mean, it, it's course it's practical it, it's viable it works it's the only thing that does work but i don't think you need a basket of commodities you're, you're fine with just one you know uh, gold works better as money than other commodities that's why gold has been money um and and that's why gold will return as money the reason that we haven't been using gold as money is because governments have moved us away from gold because gold does not serve government well it serves the public well, uh, but not government. Because government, remember, they have a very different motivation. Politicians just want to get elected. They want to be Santa Claus. They want to promise something for nothing. 
and gold stands in the way of doing that. And so if you want to be able to lie to your constituents and, and promise them something for nothing, you need to get off the gold standard and do it. You need to be with paper money so you can run all this debt and create all this inflation. Now, that's not good for the people. That undermines economic growth. That leads to a lower standard of living. So the people you know, want to go back on a gold standard if they understood it. I mean, that's why we were on a gold standard. Governments didn't choose gold. People chose gold. That's why governments use gold, because that's what the people wanted as money. And when governments were formed, if they wanted money to pay for their soldiers or whatever they needed, they needed gold, because that's the money the soldiers wanted, because that's the money that the, the, the grocer wanted or the, the land, whatever. Everybody wanted real money. And so that's where taxes came from. Governments needed taxes because they didn't have gold mines. They needed, they needed to take the gold from the public in order to spend it. But once they moved us off the gold standard, well, they've got a printing press. All governments could print money. So now, you know, they don't, they don't need to tax us. I mean, they do, but they could just print. And, uh, and that's what they've been doing. But this distorts the economy, undermines economic growth, and, and results in much lower living standards than would have been the case had we stayed on a gold standard and had a much larger economy with a much smaller government. Well, speaking of gold, um, I was thinking since 2006, at least, the main two countries who has been hoarding a lot of gold is uh, the Russians and the Chinese. Of course, they have their, besides the economic interest, they all have their political interest as, you know, adversaries. This is as effectively funding their own containment uh, by, you know, by, by, for example, using the dollar too much. But uh, I was just curious, uh, what, what do you see the Chinese? Because they're, of course, the most interesting economy as a competitor to the United States. Uh, are they, there's a lot of discussion about decoupling, so dumping U.S. debt or getting out of the U.S. dollar. Do you, do you see this uh, having... Uh, any momentum or is it moving anywhere or is it uh, uh, still uh, far off? No, no, I think it's already started and I think it will build momentum over time. I think the Chinese already recognize they have a dollar problem. The problem being they have too many dollars and I think they want to divest and they are doing that. And I think they will uh, continue to do that. And they know they need more gold and they're buying gold. You know, China is buying gold. In fact, China is the largest producer of gold. So that makes it easy for the Chinese government to acquire it because it's being produced within their borders. But they're also importing gold and buying. Uh, and, and that's going to continue. Russia, too. I mean, Russia's already bought a lot of gold. They're going to buy more. And especially not I mean, not only is it a bad idea for all these countries to accumulate paper dollars that are just going to lose value through inflation. Uh, but they're also risking losing those dollars due to sanctions or losing access to the banking system because the United States decides to impose sanctions because they don't like a particular policy that they that they pursue. So I don't think any sovereign nation wants to uh, be beholden to another foreign power like that. I don't think, uh, um, you know, China wants to see what happened to Russia happen to it. Because there clearly are things that the Chinese might do that we, we object to. Um, and so I think that they want to own a reserve asset that the United States doesn't control and doesn't have any influence over, and that would be gold. Uh, but also, I think the Chinese economy you know, has suffered from its trade relationships with the United States in that they've had these huge trade surpluses with the United States. And... You know, all they've got to show for a lot of these surpluses is a big pile of dollars, and that isn't helping them. What, what, what China needs uh, are products, not the products that it produces, but products that other people produce. And what they should be doing with their exports is using them to pay for imports. That would benefit the Chinese people and give them a higher standard of living. But instead, they are exporting what they produce to America, and Americans are not giving them anything we, that they could use. We're just giving them pieces of paper. Now they got to get rid of those pieces of paper and, and buy something that they can use. And I think that's what they're going to do. Can I just, uh, because going back to your earlier point, because there are times, I have to say, when I feel like um, we're going back 
to the kind of world that we had in the 1960s, the late 1960s, and which led to, you know, the decision in 1971 to break link with gold, because we had a massive spending program in the 1960s. We had the Great Society in the United States. We had the funding for the Vietnam War. We had the Moon Program. We had all kinds of things all going on at the same time. We had the arms race with the Soviets. And it was exactly as you say, it was the fact that the US government was overspending at that time. It was very visibly overspending at that time. And the Europeans were saying, well, we are not going to accept dollars. We want gold instead. And that was what ultimately, it seems to me, led to the decision by the US government to say, look, we're not going to provide you gold. We are going to sever the link with gold. You've got to take dollars. And that's where we got to the position that we are in. Can I ask, where does quantitative easing come into all of this? I mean, you said that it's money printing. I mean, but it's a very yeah, strange mean, form of money printing. <laughs> well, I mean, the Fed has been printing money, you know, for a long time. They didn't start printing money in 2001 when they launched quantitative easing. They just started printing a lot of money. <laughs> that, that's what happened. And so uh, quantitative easing, I guess, is just extra inflation, fast inflation, because they had been inflating for years, decades, but they just sped up the pace. And they did it again with QE2 and then QE3. And then, you know, QE4 was what happened after a COVID came around. And that's why the balance sheet got up near $9 trillion, because the Fed had printed up so much money and bought all kinds of debt instruments with that money. They've now reduced the balance sheet back down to about eight and a half trillion, but it's it's still enormous. And, you know, but, but that is inflation. You know, the, the reason the Fed came up with the term quantitative easing, and I think the Fed came up with it. Maybe somebody else did. I don't I don't know who came up with it. But let's say Ben Bernanke, when they launched quantitative easing, what if they called it inflation? What if Ben Bernanke came out and said, our program is inflation. We are going to monetize government debt. We're going to create all this inflation. And that's what's going to get us out of this financial crisis. We're going to bail out the banks and bail out the debtors by creating lots of inflation. Had they said it like that, right, put it in those terms, there would have been a backlash from the public. Whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. We don't, we don't like inflation. Hold on. That doesn't sound like a good solution to me. So when they just change the name and say quantitative easing instead of inflation, well, what's your plan? Well, we're going to do quantitative easing. Oh, okay. What's that? <laughs> it's like, well, I don't know, but it's, it sounds a lot better than inflation. And so it was a branding problem, right? The government, how can we brand inflation in a way that the public's going to like it? So we'll call it quantitative easing, right? That sounds good. I mean, easy is better than hard, right? People like stuff that's easy, not stuff that's hard. And you know, quantitative, that sounds like it's smart, right? Somebody smart knows what they're doing and it's going to be easy. So they came up with that term. Uh, but it doesn't matter what they call it, right? Arose by any other name. It's inflation. That's all it is. What about interest rate policy? Sorry, can I? Um, no, no, no. <laughs> I, think I, I, should, I mean, what, what about interest rate policy? Because that seems to have gone you know, hand in hand with this and even longer that yeah. we keep interest rates as low as possible. And whatever happens, you know, whatever we you know, if, if growth falls, we cut interest rates. If growth yeah. rises, we cut interest rates. We, we, we always have interest rates yeah. very low. And then after 2008, interest rates completely <laughs> well, we've had, again, we've had negative interest rates. I mean, all sorts of extraordinary things. That's why you don't want a central bank setting interest rates, because they're going to be motivated by politics, not by economics. In fact, even if they were trying to get the right interest rate, they, they, they'd get it wrong. I mean, central planning doesn't work. We know that. I mean, we don't have a like a Fed, like a, a, a group of people that sit around a table and meet to decide the price of milk, you know, or the price of wheat or the price of oil, we allow the market to discover that price. Even though most people would prefer lower prices for food and lower prices for energy, we let the market 
discover the price. We don't just set a low price because that's what people want. But when it comes to interest rates, we've decided the market doesn't work. We're not going to be a free market. We're going to have a group of individuals, and they're going to decide what the rate should be. Now, these individuals, you know, they're not you know, geniuses that can even figure out the right rate, but they're all politicians. They're, they're working at the behest of politicians, and they count votes. Now, let's, most countries, or let's take America, for example, the average voter is loaded up with debt. He's got credit card debt, auto loans, student loans, a big mortgage, maybe a home equity loan or a second mortgage, right? Everybody is a debtor. Not, I mean, there's some creditors, but the vast majority of voters are in debt. And so how do you get those people to vote for you? Well, you give them low interest rates. That's what they need. They need low interest rates so they can keep paying their debt. And, and, and in fact, some, in some respects, the creditors need low interest rates so their borrowers can keep paying their debt and they don't end up defaulting. So they're, they're, you have all of this political pressure to keep interest rates low, and that's what they do. Plus, of course, the U.S. government itself, with all of its debt, it can't service the debt if interest rates are high. The U.S. government needs low interest rates to be able to pay the interest on its debt. I mean, the government can sell treasury bills at 25 basis points or 50 basis points, but now that it's 500 basis points, it's going to be difficult uh, to pay the bill. And it would be even harder if it was 1,000 basis points or, you know, because who knows where rates would be if the free market was setting them. You know, we have no idea because we don't have a free market in interest rates. We have a completely rigged government market. But, you know, whenever you have the government just setting a price, it is going to create a problem, either a shortage or a surplus, because the price is going to be wrong. The market is going to find the price where the market's clear and everything works, everything is efficient. But the government is either going to pick a price that's too low or it's going to pick a price that's too high. Now, with interest rates, it's obvious, right? It's picking a price that's too low. I mean, that's that's clear. And, and so what, what happens if the price is too low? Well, you're going to get a shortage of savings, which is, of course, what we've got, right? We've got a record low savings rate because people are being paid such a small amount of money to save. In fact, they're being punished for savings because interest rates are negative. They're below the inflation rate. So because interest rates are too low, we've got a shortage of savings, which is a big problem because savings are the lifeblood of a capitalist economy. That's what leads to uh, economic growth because it finances capital investment. So we don't have enough savings. And when interest rates are too low, everybody wants to borrow. So it's not a coincidence that we have these really low interest rates and we have record amounts of debt, right? The government is loaded up with debt. The corporations are loaded up with debt. Individuals are loaded up with debt. Why? Because the rates have been so low. And, but this is going to create an economic disaster. In fact, it already is, um, but it's going to lead to a crisis. And, and you know, the fact that we've managed to avoid that crisis for as many years as we have, even though we've had these bumps along the way, like the 08 financial crisis and things like that, all we've done is allow the problem to get much, much bigger. So when we eventually have the real crash, which was you know, the, the title of one of my books, you know, it it's going to be so much worse. Yeah, so it doesn't seem like there's many places to go if you reduce, well, if uh, the interest rate is put up, then uh, yeah, the debt-ridden economy will will collapse. And if it's kept low, the, yeah, the dollar will uh, be Well, rejected. if it's kept low, right, then the debt gets bigger. Yeah, mass inflation, yeah. So it has to collapse eventually, mm -hmm. right? But the longer they leave rates low, the bigger the debt bubble gets and the more reluctant they are to letting rates go up because now it's going to pop an even bigger bubble. So their solution is to take the bubble that they're afraid to allow pop and make it even bigger. <laughs> but it's not like if we blow a bubble big enough, it's never going to pop. That, you know, that, that, that's not how the physics of it works. It will pop eventually. But speaking about uh, losing a bit of control over the situation, because uh, Alexander previously mentioned, uh, you know, Nixon taking the U.S. off the gold standard in '71, uh, uh, but then this, of course, was uh, replaced by the petrodollar, in which the United mm -hmm. States, uh, you know, well, uh, Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states sell energy primarily, primarily in dollars or on, only in dollars. So 
you know, this becomes the main currency of international trade and thus also reserve currency. But uh, but uh, there's been a lot of changes. I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia now, they, they're talking about opening up for trade in alternative currencies. They're having a bit more meetings, uh, suspicious meeting with uh, China. Also, Russia, as a key energy exporter, has also now insisted on uh, taking uh, at least uh, either local currencies or at least not the U.S. dollar anymore for its energy. Uh, do you see the uh, how 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 important do you think this is going to be, or is it uh, is still too early to say if uh, the well the petrodollar could die and. Uh, well, with with this uh, efforts of uh, shifting trade away from the dollar, especially the Saudi Saudis, I found this I found this to be very interesting and a bit surprised. This doesn't get more media attention, to be honest. Yeah, well, remember most people in media don't understand this, and so they're not going to pay much attention to it. Uh, but yeah, I think it is very significant. I think the petrodollar was key to maintaining the dollar's reserve status, especially in the aftermath of Nixon's default which is what it was. We, you know, we owed gold. Federal Reserve notes were promises to pay gold. I mean, that's why they're called a note. It was an IOU from the Federal Reserve and the holders of those Federal Reserve notes were old gold and they expected to be delivered gold at a set rate. And we basically told everybody, you're not getting what we promised to pay you. We, we defaulted. So people who say hey, America has never defaulted. Oh, yes, we did. 1971 was a massive default. Uh, but what we did do to try to give value to the dollar, because all of a sudden the dollar that used to be backed by gold was backed by nothing, we did convince Saudi Arabia to start pricing oil in gold. And so we told the world, look, we're not going to give you any gold for your dollars, but you could take them to Saudi Arabia. They'll give you oil, right? It wasn't at a fixed price per barrel, but they would at least accept them, right? You, you didn't have to convert them into some other currency or something. And so that created some demand for dollars, because if you wanted to buy Saudi Arabian oil or OPEC oil, you needed dollars. And so if you didn't have any dollars, I and mean, if you didn't have any oil, you could earn dollars through your exports and then take those dollars and buy oil, right? And, and so that's what helped give the dollar value. But what's happening right now, and it's pretty obvious, that a lot of the oil exporting countries are trying to get out from under this and are pushing back against the idea of selling their oil in U.S. dollars. And that's just beginning. And I think that is going to continue, that trend, and that ultimately nobody is going to be selling oil in U.S. dollars. I mean, maybe they'll accept dollars, but they'll accept lots of alternatives, whether it's other currencies, whether it's gold, whether it's some kind of a, a cryptocurrency backed by gold, who knows? But I do think that these exporting countries are going to want to wean themselves off of their dependence on dollars for global trade. And you can already see that that's happening. I think a lot of people don't know this fact, but before 1971, up to the sort of crisis of that time, oil was actually priced in gold. I mean, I'm just old enough to remember the fact that this was, this was the sort of, uh, it was actually a to a great extent, when it was traded, it was priced against. It, it was this gold price that people. Yeah, and at. not. But if it was yeah. priced in gold, then it was de facto priced in dollars because the dollar yeah. was set. It was thirty-five dollars equaled one ounce of gold. Exactly. So exactly, it, you know, it, yeah. if something was a tenth of an ounce of gold, it was three dollars yes. and fifty cents, and that's yes. about what oil was trading at. I think two or three dollars a barrel before 1971, yes. Yes. that's where it was. And then when we went off the gold standard, when the dollar crashed, oil went up to like $30 a barrel. But in terms of yes. gold, the price but, actually went down. But that's, 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 that, that is exactly the point. Because of course, what the Saudis, what the Arabs, what the, the, the OPEC countries were doing was that they were actually trying to protect in their own way, their own complicated way, the price of their, their, their product. Because against gold, oil, actually fell and yes. as i say it's that yeah and that's and that's what, when i look at the 1970s see a lot of people mm -hmm. say the arabs gouged us by you know raising prices no they didn't we tried to gouge them by paying them in depreciated dollars that's what was going on they weren't charging us more they were accepting less they were just trying to stay even we were the ones trying to screw them
<laughs> you know, we defaulted on our, our commitment and we used to pay them gold for their oil and we tried to pay them in paper. But paper doesn't have the same value as gold. So we were the ones that were trying to screw the OPEC nations. It wasn't the other way around, but the way it was framed in America, oh, these they're gouging us, they're jacking up their prices. No, they're not. We're we're destroying the value of the money we're paying them in. I think it's worth looking at uh, talking about inflation because they mentioned in 1971 it was $35 per ounce. Now it's uh, above uh, 1900 uh, moving towards 2000 Well, it was. Now. You know, gold's down 50 bucks today. It was down $30 yesterday. So we're, I think we're around 1860 or 1870. But, but yeah, I mean, we're headed higher, clearly. But, you know, the last couple of days notwithstanding. <laughs> I'm not sure how you see the European economy uh, because, well, uh, here in Europe, we often well, tend to think, yes, um, the United States might be in bad shape, but at least they're doing better than us. Uh, I guess at least over the past year, uh, many people are, well, rightly so, getting more pessimistic because uh, especially cutting ourselves off energy. I mean, energy was really yeah. It's, yeah, imperative for any competitive economy. You can't have competitive industries if you don't have cheap energy. That's well, the lifeblood, but now yeah. it seems to be all that uh, cheap energy is being sold on discount to to Asia, which will now make it very difficult for our economies to, or industries yeah, to I, survive. Certainly, certainly Europe is having a much bigger impact from the war with uh, Russia and Ukraine than the United States. And so to that respect, the European uh, economies have suffered more. And the U.S. economy maybe even had a boost because we got to supply all the the, the war material, uh, and we got the uh, flows, the capital flows came into the US that was leaving Europe because of, of the war. Um, but I'd say overall, if you're looking at a big picture, I, I'd say that the US as a whole, right, the, the 50 US states combined, you know, and the federal government are in worse shape than the, the countries sharing the euro currency collectively. Um, and, and one of the reasons for that is because we've been able to go even deeper into debt. I mean, at least Europe, I think, collectively runs a trade surplus. Some countries have deficits, others have surpluses. But overall, you know, the, the trade is relatively in balance. I mean, we have enormous deficits, so completely unsustainable. And, you know, we have a larger debt to GDP uh, than, than Europe. But also, I think the U.S. has much larger unfunded liabilities than the Eurozone does and the European, you know, I mean, as far as all the commitments that the U.S. government has made that, you know, it, it can't keep, but it's obligated to, to pay, uh, it's just in, enormous. And I think the nature of our economy, uh, given how much of it is service sector and how little of it is actually underlying manufacturing, you know, goods production, wealth creation, um, and we have an army of people that is uh, looking to retire with no real uh, savings to support that. And we have a, a young population of very ignorant, unskilled uh, people. people. Uh, you know, they spend a lot of time in government schools, but they haven't really learned anything. They don't have any real marketable skills to show for all the time they wasted in government skills, nor did they acquire any trades. Uh, you know, so, you know, we're, we're, we're in a lot of trouble, you know, as a society right now in the United States. And I think even more so than Europe, not to say that Europe doesn't have problems. They do, you know, they have, they have serious problems. I just think that our serious problems are even more serious. Can I just say, I mean, you, you speak about Europe, of course, I live in Britain, you can tell from my accent. I mean, here problems are very perhaps more similar in some ways to the United States. And Britain and in Europe, we've had, I think, very, very bad interest rate policies. I was yes. just reading just, just actually this morning an article about what's happened with car buying. Interest rates were so low. People were encouraged and have been encouraged for many years to buy extremely expensive cars. They've been buying them on credit. Their cars, which are, of course, imported, interest rates have been creeping up. A lot of these people are now severely underwater. But up to now, it's worked because um, nobody expected the debts ever to be repaid. 
people were taking out debts they couldn't afford. Um, they would trade out the cars all the time. They would be able mm -hmm. to renew their debts. Everybody was happy. And of course, all that was happening was that we were importing more and more cars into Britain. And that's just one example. And it was a direct consequence of interest rate policies, a very, very bad interest rate policies. And I'm not saying it's like that in, you know, continental Europe. But I think it varies a lot from one place to another. And I think in some places it's pretty bad indeed. Peter, yeah, but not only, you know, <laughs> not only do you have the problem of a credit bubble and, and auto loans that are going to go bad and, and lenders that are going to lose money, but you have to look at the damage that was done to the economy when people were buying cars they couldn't afford. And borrowing money to buy cars meant that money was not available to fund you know, more productive investments. Because when you're buying a car, I mean, unless you're in the business of transporting other people, if I, if I run a taxi cab business and I buy cars for my cab drivers to drive, okay, that's, you know, that's an investment in, you know, I'm providing transportation services. But when I buy a car for myself, I mean, yes, to the extent that I need a car to get to work, that car could be a, an important thing that I need to be more productive. But I don't need a fancy new car to get to work. I can get to work in an old beat up car. I, you know, it doesn't matter. But when people end up borrowing 20, 30, 40,000 pounds, whatever, more to buy a brand new car when they had a used car that was perfectly good uh, for you know, their, their needs, but they took advantage of these cheap interest rates to borrow all this money, you're screwing up the economy because now that money is not there to fund capital investment. So instead of building more factories or building more stuff, we just produce more luxury cars that people really didn't need. And, and, and so the whole economy suffers because we're not getting the allocation of resources and the savings and consumption that we would get in a free market. Because if the free market allowed interest rates to be much higher and it was a lot more expensive to go out and take out a loan to buy that new car, people would have not bought the new car. They would have made do with the car they had. And so what would they have done with that money they spent on a new car? They would have had something with it, and it would have been more productive for the economy than what they ended up doing with it. Uh, and so everybody suffers when the government does this. But, of course, the voter likes it because initially, oh, wait, I can get this brand new car. This is great. You know? and, and, and not only were people able to buy cars you know, for no interest, but a lot of them were doing it with no down payments. So they, it just, they just walked into a car dealership with no money and walked out with a brand new car. So. That, is, that is exactly right. That is exactly what happens. What, what should we do? I mean, what should we, you know, if you were advising the government, what, would they, what, would, what should we do in this situation? I mean, because the way you describe it, it's so bad that we're going to have to go through this crash now because realistically, I can't really see how we can change this. Um, are we going to have to go through this great recession or depression or whatever it is? Yeah. Look, you know, first of all, the, the first rule of holes is when you're in one, stop digging. And so that's what we have to do. We have to recognize we're in a hole and then stop digging. Right? Because making the hole bigger is not the solution to our problems. It just allows us to delay having to accept that we're in a hole and that we eventually have to get out of it. So that, that's what we have to do. But, you know, somebody has to deliver the bad news. And that's, you know, nobody wants to do that, right? You, you, there's another old expression, you know, don't shoot the messenger. And the reason that people say that is because people have a tendency to shoot the messenger, right? They blame the bad news on whoever delivers the message. So politicians, they don't want to do it. The central bank, nobody wants to do it. I mean, I'm willing to do it, but I mean, that's because, you know, I'm not trying to get, get elected. Um, but, you know, it's not that the news is all bad if you understand how to deliver it, because capitalism is a very dynamic system. And it works wonders when governments leave it alone and just let it happen. And... I know how well capitalism worked in the 19th century. I, you can look back and you can see the tremendous increase in standards of living uh, that took place. And even you could look at what happened 
in the 20th century, even to uh, Germany and Japan after the war and, and, and how quickly they were able to rebuild by, with, with capitalism. Capitalism uh, can do wonders. And you can go, I mean, I just got back from Dubai and you look at what's going on over there. You know, look at how quickly, like all these buildings are almost popping out of nowhere. You know, these beautiful skyscrapers because there's no taxes and minimal regulation. But if capitalism works so well in America, you know, in the 19th century, when we had no computers, you know, we had no internet, we didn't have telephones, we never, you know, we didn't have any of this modern technology, yet capitalism still worked great. Imagine how much better it would work now. I mean, we got all these tools that we didn't have. We have all this infrastructure that we didn't have. So if we start doing the right thing, we will see positive results very quickly and not immediately, right? So we're gonna have some pain, but there is enormous amount of gain that's out there. So somebody has to deliver the message, you know, with a spoonful of sugar, you know, let people know that look, you know, yes, government caused all these problems and now the economy is real screwed up and solving these problems is, you know, is gonna involve recognizing long overdue pain, uh, but going forward, you know, you're going to be free from government. I mean, you know, we can get rid of, dismantle all these programs. Hey, go to work. You don't have to pay any taxes anymore. You know, no more income tax, no more payroll tax, just some, you know, minimal taxes just to cover the cost of, you know, the roads and, you know, whatever, and, you know, defense. But the government, nobody has to spend all this money. It's all going for transfer payments. You know, we got to get rid of all these uh, uh, Ponzi schemes that the governments are running, or at least significantly, reduce them. Uh, but, you know, if we have a, a real free market economy, if we go back to real money instead of government funny money, um, we can see a, a big increase in our standard of living. But before the standard of living goes up, it's going to come down. There's no way around it. But if we don't do the right thing, then the standard of living is going to collapse and it's never coming back. I just have a yeah, final question, which is, uh, well, with, with what countries should do, obviously, uh, they should uh, accept the correction, yeah, take the medicine or the pain now and uh, uh, yeah, adjust. But uh, how about the average person, uh, individual watching? What's, uh, you know, as we enter this huge uh, new economic or financial storm, what, what can an average person do to prepare or uh, yes, safeguard themselves uh, as yeah, well, you know, since the standard of living collapse? The governments are not likely to do the right thing, right? They're not going to, you know, cut spending. They're not going to tell voters who are expecting checks from the government that they're not going to get those checks or that they're going to get significantly smaller checks, right? The governments are just not going to do that. Uh, so what's going to happen is the government is going to pay all the money that they've committed to pay. It's just not going to have much value when the recipients receive it. Right. It's going to be inflation. And so paper money is going to lose the majority of its purchasing power. And so what that means is if you have a lot of this paper money, you need to get rid of it. But that doesn't mean you just go out and spend it and have a party, because then what do you do? So what I want to do is I want to take that paper and I want to use it to acquire real assets while I can. Real assets that are going to stay here, they aren't going to go away. And so what I've been doing for myself and for clients is we buy good dividend paying stocks, companies that have real assets, real products, uh, plant and equipment, resources, things like that, and that are selling products or services that people need and that they're going to buy even if the price goes up. Right? And they'll stop buying other things to, pay the, to buy those things because that's what they need. So I want to be in the business. I want to own things that people need and I'm, that I can sell them and I can keep raising their prices right, to, 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 to stay even with inflation or stay ahead of inflation. I also want to own a lot of the resources, the commodities and the raw materials that governments can't print that are going to be a lot more valuable in the future. Um, I also recognize that in a post-US dollar world where the dollar crashes, I think the biggest winners are going to be a lot of the emerging market economies that I think have been held back by the dollar. Uh, they have borne the, the lion's share of the burden of, of supporting the dollar system. And I think those economies will thrive and uh, I want to have investments that will benefit from, from that. Uh, so we invest in a lot of these emerging market uh, companies or com companies in developed markets that have a lot of customers in emerging markets and they'll benefit from 
an increase in purchasing power there. Remember, as America imports less, well, the, the goods that America used to buy are going to be bought by somebody, right? So I think a lot of the emerging market consumers are going to be stepping up and getting what Americans can no longer afford. So the businesses that have better pipelines into those markets, you know, I think are, are what you want to own. And, you know, I would encourage people, you know, who are listening to this interview, if they have money, then you're at risk, especially if you have U.S. dollars, if you have uh, bonds that are denominated in U.S. dollars, you are going to get taxed to death through inflation. But the good news is you can avoid the inflation tax by avoiding owning the currency that's being taxed because the U.S. government can only tax my dollars with inflation. They can't tax my gold. They can't tax my stocks. They can only tax my dollars. So I minimize the number of dollars I have to avoid the inflation tax. And, you know, we're managing money from people all around the world. And in fact, two of my strategies, my dividend payer strategy and my value strategy, I have replicated in mutual funds that I have made available to Americans, right? They're not available to the international audience, but they're based on my separately managed accounts that are available to people pretty much all over the world. There's a few sanctioned countries that, you know, we can't work with, but most people, we know we can manage money for them. But if you look at the performance, at least the relative performance of my funds, the uh, U.S. News & World Report, it was like maybe a week or two ago, came out with a survey of the top 60 funds in large cap value. They, they reviewed 350 funds and they narrowed it down to the top 60. And they looked at those funds over the last year, three years and five years, and they put their ranking. And my dividend payers fund was ranked number one and my value fund was ranked number three. Now, somehow there was a Goldman Sachs fund that managed to get in between there, you know, but uh, other than that, I got number one and number three. Um, but, and the reason that my funds did so well is because of the stock selection. We're buying, you know, good companies, real value, and the, re the, the sector allocation, you know, I'm, I'm, we're allocating correctly. We're not anywhere near the benchmark. We're very different from our benchmark. And that's the reason we're able to outperform the benchmark by so much. But my strategy really is designed for a weak dollar. So we were able to outperform even with a strong dollar. But if I'm right and that the dollar turns south, and it looks like it started to turn south in the fourth quarter of last year. So if we do get a, a, a persistently weak dollar, which I think we're going to have, in fact, I think the dollar is going to hit a record low, the dollar index, then my strategy should do even better, not only on a relative basis compared to its peers, but on an absolute basis. So I would encourage people you know, to contact the reps at Europe Pacific Asset Management to open up an account, you know, go to our website or give us a call so that we can get you out of harm's way, get out of dollars or other currencies that are likely to lose value and build a portfolio that will do well in an inflationary environment because that's the environment we're going to be living in uh, you know, for the foreseeable future. Alexander, do you have anything? Uh, muted. Sorry, you're muted. Muted. Just to say, to thank you very much, Peter, for all these extremely interesting and valuable insights. And uh, well, your investment advice at the end, very, very helpful, I think. Yeah, thank you. And, and of course, and of course, remember, you know, for the disclosure, there's risks involved. So read the prospectuses if you're looking at my mutual funds. But and the international crowd, again, they're not buying the funds. Uh, but, uh, you know, past, as they say, past performance is no guarantee of future. future well, Peter, but Peter, I, I'm very optimistic about my strategy personally. Well, Peter, can I just say a couple of years ago, we had a we had an investment vehicle here called Equitable Life. You probably remember it. You might have heard of it. This is in Britain. This is this is a while back, actually, but people were investing in it, all these sorts of privileged people. And they all complained afterwards that it wasn't risk free when it failed because they'd been told it was risk free. And the point was, if you're told something is risk free, then you know that you should keep well, well away that's all my nothing, that's all i can ever say nothing nothing everything is, comes with risk yeah. well nothing is risk-free even the risk-free asset because people refer to u.s treasuries as being risk-free well treasuries had a horrible year last year people lost you know more money in u.s treasuries than they have in any year since the great depression 
So the risk-free asset can be very risky. It's all based on perception. And so no matter what you do, you're gonna have to accept some degree of risk. The question is, which risks do you want to assume and which, which risks do you want to avoid? Personally, I want to avoid the risk of inflation and a weak U.S. dollar. I've decided that I don't want those risks. And that means I can't own U.S. treasuries. I can't own CDs or high quality U.S. corporate bonds because then I'm assuming a risk that I don't want. So I would rather assume a different risk. I would rather take the risk of foreign stocks going down or gold going down or things like that than inflation and a weak U.S. dollar. So it, everybody has to decide which risks they're comfortable assuming and which risks they want to avoid. But people who think they're avoiding risk by keeping their money safe in the bank or you know, stuffed under their mattress, they're not. They are taking a tremendous risk that I don't want to take. I don't advise my clients to take it, but people are taking this risk without even appreciating it. Uh, they're, they're just doing it, you know, kind of because they, they think it's safe. They're, they're focusing on, I don't want to lose my dollars, right? I, 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 don't want to I don't want to risk losing dollars. Well, okay. And so if your goal is not to lose dollars, that's an easy goal to accomplish, right? You could, you could find a way not to lose your dollars. But what happens if your dollars lose all their value? What good are dollars that don't have any value? That's what people have to pay attention to. It's not your dollars that you should try to preserve. It's your purchasing power. And if you want to preserve purchasing power, you're not doing that with U.S. dollars. So you got to find an alternative. And I believe that's what I'm providing to my clients is that alternative. Very, very wise words. <laughs> uh, thanks again, Peter. Uh, thanks for your time. Uh, much appreciated. All right. Take care, guys. Take care. Thanks.